you. We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, we're hearing lots about the Russian invasion in Ukraine, but what's this talk about invasion in the Solomon Islands? Well, this morning we talked to Tarsitius Kabutablaka. He's an associate professor with the Center for Pacific Island Studies at the University of Hawaii. He's from the Solomons. He believes there's been a lot of recent tough talk between the prime minister of the Solomons and Australia. Kabutalaka helps to unpack what's behind the strained diplomatic relations in the area. So Solomon Islands used to have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And then in 2019, it switched diplomatic relations from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China, or PRC. Uh, And that same month, another Pacific Island country, Kiribati, also switched diplomatic relations from uh, Taiwan to to, uh, mainland China. That leaves only four Pacific Island countries that have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, and they are Tuvalu, Palau, Marshall Islands, and Nauru. And so the number of countries that have diplomatic relations has gone down over the years, not only here in the Pacific, but globally as well. And that caused a a concern in Washington, D.C., and Canberra, and Wellington, and other Western governments concern about China's increasing influence in the Pacific Islands region. And we've seen that happen over the years, particularly in the last 20 years. But especially from around 2006, we've seen a lot of uh, Chinese companies, a lot of Chinese investments and increases in Chinese assistance to Pacific Island countries. And uh, the concern from Washington, D.C. is that, that would eventually turn into military presence in the region, a region that has long been dominated by Western powers, particularly in the post-Second World War period. The U.S., Australia, France, the United Kingdom, although Great Britain had you know, kind of retreated but is now coming back, and setting up embassies in a number of Pacific Island countries. And so it's a big concern for the U.S. and Australia for different reasons. For the U.S., it's an area that they've seen as their sphere of influence. And then you have this thing, the Indo-Pacific. So now over here, instead of we have the Asia-Pacific Command, we now have the Indo-Pacific Command, which is based here in Hawaii, And it's responsible for the Pacific Islands as well as Asia as well. So a huge part of our planet's surface area. And the idea of the Indo-Pacific under the Trump administration is that it covers the Pacific Ocean as well as the Indian Ocean, uh, a, a space where the U.S. ceases its sphere of influence, but also an attempt to counter China's growing influence globally. Uh, but especially so in the Pacific Islands. And so we've had this development where the Solomons have now, what, executed an agreement with China uh, to help with security? In late March, a document, a draft of a document was leaked on social media, uh, and it was later actually signed, and both Beijing and Honiara uh, have come out and stated that it is an agreement. So it's it's an agreement, it's a security agreement between Solomon Islands and China. The worrying part for the U.S. and Australia is that it provides for Chinese security personnel to be deployed in Solomon Islands if there was any internal conflict. Now, that part of the agreement comes from the fact that In November of 2021, there was a riot in Honiara, an anti-government riot that resulted in the destruction of a lot of properties in the capital. A lot of those are owned by Chinese business owners. And in fact, most of the businesses in Honiara are owned by people of Chinese descent. Some of them are recent migrants to the Solomons. Some of them are third, fourth generation children of Chinese who had gone to the Solomons either in the late 1800s or early 1900s. 
And so the agreement, I think that particular clause of the agreement is the Chinese government saying that Chinese security personnel can be deployed to protect Chinese businesses, so Chinese properties, as well as Chinese citizens. So that's the first worrying part, is the deployment of Chinese personnel. The second concern for Washington, D.C. and Canberra is that it provides for Chinese naval ships to come into the Solomons, and the word they use is replenish, if and when they need it. So it's the issue of access that is of great concern, having access to the Solomon Islands. So, yeah. Officials there in the Solomon Islands have uh, had some strong words in the last couple of days, uh, alluding to some invasion of the islands there. I, I'm assuming he's alluding to Australia and the U.S.? Well, I, I think that the, the debate has gone, you know, there's a huge partisan debate, and uh, uh, I, I suppose, you know, a lot of strong words coming from Honiara. So. I, I think the Solomon Islands government, their bottom line is that we are a sovereign nation state and we have the right to enter into an agreement with another nation state. Uh, and uh, Australia and the U.S. should not interfere in Solomon Islands national affairs uh, in the same way Solomon Islands would not interfere in the internal national affairs of other countries, including Australia. Uh, and New Zealand. So so there's a lot of emotion and a lot of discussions, but I, I think there are nuances to these discussions that we also need to focus on rather than the very, uh, the, the, the huge differences in rhetoric that are coming from these places. Yes, we need to remain calm. Yeah. <laughs> think yeah. clearly. So before the agreement was signed, the Australian government sent in a minister to the Honiara, which is only two hours, nearly three hours from, from Brisbane, to Honiara to try and persuade the Solomon Islands government not to sign the agreement. Uh, Canberra and Washington, D.C. have interpreted the agreement as allowing for the eventually the possibility of the establishment of a Chinese naval base in the Solomons. The Solomon Islands government have come out stating that they will not allow a Chinese naval base, and that's not specifically stated uh, in the agreement, so it's not something that they've agreed on. And so Australia went in to try and persuade the Solomon Islands government not to sign the agreement. The Solomon Islands prime minister assured Australia that there would not be a naval base and uh, also stated that Australia is Solomon Islands' security partner of choice uh, because of its proximity, but also because Australia has been involved in a number of things uh, in Solomon Islands, including being the largest uh, uh, donor partner in, in not only in the Solomons, but in the entire Pacific Islands region. Now, the Washington, D.C. then sent in a delegation that was led by Kate Campbell, uh, Biden administration's Indo-Pacific coordinator. They flew into Honiara, but by then the agreement had already been signed. Uh, and I think, you know, they were exploring areas of partnership between Solomon Islands and the U.S., uh, areas where U.S. can assist. Uh, but I think the biggest concern for them is that uh, China uh, is becoming a power to reckon with in the region. Then there were also statements coming out of Beijing that the agreement is between two sovereign countries and they do not expect third parties to interfere in the sovereignty of these countries, meaning China and the Solomons. And, and I, I personally do not think that China will establish a military base in the Solomon Islands for a number of reasons. One is that there will be, if they do, there will be a lot of pushback from Solomon Islands' traditional partners, which includes Australia and New Zealand. The U.S. has been largely absent uh, in the South Pacific for a long time, although they're much more present 
in the North Pacific with the Kofa countries, Palau, mm-hmm. uh, Federated States of Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands. The Compact and, of Free uh, Association. Yeah, with the Compact of Free Association. And their military base in Guam and, of course, Kwajalein. So that's where the U.S. has largely been present. But since the end of the Cold War in the late 1980s into the 1990s, they've been largely absent in the South Pacific. They closed their, the U.S. closed its embassy in Solomon Islands in 1993. Now they're talking about going back and re-establishing uh, that embassy. Interesting. Um, now the only embassies they have is in uh, Fiji and Papua New Guinea in the region. China has embassies in 10 Pacific Island countries. Uh, And so they have a much more underground diplomatic footprint than the U.S. I suppose the U.S. now, given what's happened in Solomon Islands uh, and given what China's uh, increasing presence around the region is trying to reestablish itself. So it might not surprise uh, watchers of this area with this development. It's complicated, but China is only very recently, the Chinese state, only very recently that it has presence in Solomon Islands. Only in 2019 that they established diplomatic relationship since the 1980s, since 1983, Mm -hmm. actually. Solomon Islands had established relationship with Taiwan. Uh, And given the one-China policy, that Beijing has, and, and, and its argument is that there is only one China, and Taiwan is a province, breakaway province of China, uh, and therefore anyone who recognizes Taiwan, Beijing sees them as trying to legitimize a breakaway province of China. And, and the interesting thing is the U.S. has diplomatic relations with mainland China, but it has very close relationship with Taiwan as well. What else should we be looking for then as this plays out? The U.S. and Canberra will be looking out to ensure that this agreement does not result in greater military presence or Chinese military presence in the region. And they're really concerned about this for a number of reasons. One is given the activities that we've seen in the South China Sea uh, and in what China or Beijing sees as its first island chain of defense. And then the second island chain, of course, uh, includes places like Guam. So they have this idea that there are a chain of islands uh, moving east from China, where China sees as its sphere of defense. So the first island chain includes the South China Sea. The second island chain includes Guam and down to places like Palau and so forth. And the third island chain is out from that. And so for Australia, I think its concern is is domestic. It's domestic security. Any threat to Australia's domestic security by another power is most likely to come from the north. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it during the Second World War. Okay. Uh, you know, the Japanese attack on Darwin. Uh, and so it sees the countries north of Australia, which includes Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and Solomon Islands, as crucial to its domestic security. That was Tarsitius Kabutaulaka, who is with the UH Center for Pacific Island Studies. He was explaining the tensions in the South Pacific region between Solomon Islands and China, as well as Australia and the U.S. <laughs> is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's time now for your backyard quiz. Mm-hmm. 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we're going to spotlight the Japanese celebration called Tengo no Seku. You may have noticed colorful carp-shaped windsocks flying in neighborhood yards, or perhaps you've raised a carp streamer yourself. Traditionally, uh, today marks Boys' Day. Uh, J- Japan celebrates the health and happiness of boys by flying a carp for each boy in the home. This cultural tradition was brought to Hawaii by early Japanese immigrants. The flying of the carp symbolizes each family's hope that their boys will grow up healthy and strong. Nowadays, May 5th is also called Children's Day. Modern families no longer just fly carp flags for boys. They now have one for each parent and keiki in the ohana. Traditional uh, foods eaten include mochi rice cakes. For today's quiz, we want to know the name of the streamer that you see blowing in the wind. Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 from Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NairitHawaii.com. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Silva B. And one story that is trending on its website is out of the surprise pullout by former Mayor Kirk Caldwell in the governor's race. Joining us is editor Chad Blair. Good morning, Chad. Happy Boys' Day, Catherine. <laughs> Children's Day. <laughs> Happy Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> And may and may the fifth be with you. Yes, <laughs> that's my own holiday. Anyway, yes, um, the Kirk Caldwell story is is the number one story on our site, leading other news organizations as well. And is it a surprise? Probably to people that are plugged into local politics. Maybe not so much. Probably to people that were never crazy about Kirk Caldwell and and his leadership on the Honolulu Rail Project. It's probably a big relief, but. Still, Caldwell, a dominant figure uh, in Hawaii politics, and uh, before he you know, left office after his second term two years ago, you saw him everywhere, particularly with COVID, right? The last, uh, he was very active during the early parts of COVID. So having him drop out of the Democratic primary for governor, which, uh, you know, is really still kind of a, shaking up a lot of people, it's got a lot of people also talking about what's the consequence, what's going to happen next, what's going to happen with other races, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, we've all been hearing about uh, you know possibly an announcement by uh, uh, Kai Kahele, uh, you know, and, and then he might join the governor's race. Uh, so you know, we're just wondering, you know, what's really behind this decision? Is he just out of money, like he says, doesn't have enough uh, funding, uh, and it, and now is not his time, according to the statement that they released. Right. In fact, that's in Caldwell's own words. The the press release was all f- from him directly. And, and he did say at least twice, this is not my time. But he also specifically cited money, uh, lackluster fundraising. Uh, we haven't seen the latest numbers. They don't come out, I think, until uh, June or July. I can't remember when the next one is. But the first round of fundraising back in January, February, Josh Green, the lieutenant governor, also in the running for governor, uh, well ahead in that. Uh, Vicky Cayetano, the former first lady, doing okay. But no real big bucks. Uh, he, he, he did okay, Kurt Caldwell, but you need you need money. That's the lifeblood of a campaign. The other thing that he mentioned, and I think this is not unrelated to the first thing, and that a lack of momentum, uh, that he just couldn't seem to, to get people excited about the campaign. It's... I mean, it's no secret that the bulk of the labor unions uh, in town are supporting Josh Green in the state of Hawaii. And that's an extremely important constituency when it comes to running in a Democratic primary. So without money, without support from unions and a general, I think, um, disappointment, concern that maybe we saw too much of Kirk Caldwell over, over the eight years. Remember, he was also briefly mayor 
uh, acting mayor back when Mufi Hanneman left to run for governor, also unsuccessfully. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, I think also that, uh, you know, there's uh, people speculating, well, so what's he going to do? Is he going to run for something else or just sit it out? I mean, so, that, you know, that leaves Green and Vicky Cayetano. Uh, but, yeah, it's... You know, some, yeah, we, some... we don't know. Uh, Kai Kahele, the word is he's going to announce in, in Hilo on, on Saturday. It's not for sure. This is not confirmed, but probably the three of them will dominate the race. But in terms of Caldwell, um, he did say in his his uh, press release yesterday how much he still hopes to you know, work in the future towards a better Hawaii. It's in his blood. There's no question the man like loves politics. There was some speculation maybe he would run for Congress. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I'd be surprised. Other people are already lining up. Uh, should Kai Kahele, uh leap, right? Jill Takuda, uh, Tommy Waters is a possibility. Pat Bronco, the, the freshman house rep, is already running. But in terms of Caldwell, uh, you know, this is not his time. We'll see whether he chooses to, to run in the future. He's 69 years old. And and but you know it's in his bloodline. Yeah, and folks are wondering you know how much the um, uh, federal indictments with three of his uh, mm. cabinet uh, members uh, or two of his cabinet members, right? Uh, you know, uh, affects. We don't know, decision. and yeah, we don't know. But that that was Donna Leong, the you know basically the chief attorney for the city and county, and Roy Amamiya, his managing director, Max Sword, who he appointed during the police commission. Uh, Caldwell is on the record as being supportive of of the three and thinking that they'll be cleared essentially, but we don't know, and 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 that lingers. And some have even speculated whether there might be more indictments to come. We don't know, but uh, I think it's a combination of factors. And and all in all, he probably made the right decision. Uh, I mean, you don't want to lose, right? If you want to keep your future viable, the last thing you want to do is lose an election. Yeah. Well, musical chairs, <laughs> uh, <laughs> first one out, and then we'll see what happens over this next week uh, before the. F- a filing deadline, uh, which is like a month away. But Should thanks. be a lot of developments. Yes. Thanks, well, Catherine. Thanks so much, Chad. Well, that was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can uh, read the story at civilbeat.org. We have been taking a closer look at a proposed project along the rail route. It's in Waipahu and envisions uh, 500 units of sorely needed affordable rentals as well as a commercial development. Sounds like what the area needs, but some say what the developer, High Ridge Costa, and landowner Kamehameha Schools is proposing is too high and out of character for the area. Here's current neighborhood board member and past chair Richard Oshiro talking about the transit-oriented development district, which was the first to be adopted by the city. It clearly states that the TOD plan for Waipahu recommends a design policy that respects the plantation heritage and low-rise buildings in and around the Waipahu Transit Center Station, which is the area in which uh, Kamehameha Schools is proposing their project, the Avalao. Right, and that high-rise project far exceeds the plan. Yeah, the um, TOD plan has a 60-foot height restriction. So right off the bat, the project that Kamehameha Schools presented was to construct two high-rises. Initially, they proposed 20 stories, but then they changed it a bit and said, well, they made an accommodation. A lot of folks were not happy with the 20 stories, so they knocked it down to 19 stories and 18 stories. So they felt that was a big you know, move on their part in terms of what they were proposing. The project still proposes um, over 500 units on lands that Kamehameha Schools owns in that area between Waipahu Depot Road and Hikimoi Street, which is adjacent to the Waipahu Transit Center, and also the new rail stop. And and so, uh, gosh, so you you just don't feel that it uh, it fits there in that area? Uh, it. it certainly does not, because this is what the community had envisioned, that the area around this particular station really is the historical core of the community. So the type of um, redevelopment that we would like to see should be in tune with what the character of the area is, the historic road, Waipao Depot Road, 
you have the iconic Moksak in Waipau that's part of the architecture of the Leeward YMCA, and also another cultural resource that is on the same property adjacent to the Leeward YMCA is the Philcom Center, the Filipino Cultural Center. And it's really a, a resource for the whole community because of the kinds of activities that it has. And the other cultural resource that's nearby on Waipau Street is the Plantation Village, which is a museum dedicated to our plantation legacy and the immigrants who came to Hawaii and worked on the plantations. We have various ethnic groups represented there in the buildings that they have recreated, you know, Japanese, Filipino, Chinese, Portuguese, and uh, other structures in the in the um, uh, the grounds of the plantation village that represent, you know, our plantation heritage. So this is the area in which this project is going to be constructed if they are permitted to proceed. And given that the TOD plan, which uh, has that height limitation, you know, the uh, Kamehameha schools will have to go to the city to get variances if they are continue, will continue to propose structures that exceed the height limitations that are currently in place in ordinance. That was Richard Oshiro of the Waipahu Neighborhood Board. You know, we also talked with Harrison Rue. He is the city's transit-oriented development and community building administrator. Well, there's actually two station areas, so it's slightly different in the historic plantation town along Waipahu Depot Road. It calls for mixed-use zoning in what we call B2, existing B2 to BMX, which BMX means mixed-use with a height limit of 60 feet in basically the all the commercial areas around it. And then the surrounding single-family neighborhoods are all um, unchanged. In the, the West Lock Station, there's a, a little more variation. There's some, some BMX3, allows a height of 90 feet. And then there's some apartment mixed-use zoning along a height of 60 feet. And then IMX, industrial mixed-use, in the Mackay area that's currently zoned industrial. So there's a little more density encouraged and a little more diversity of particularly the industrial uses at the West Lock Station. Some folks in the Waipahu community were a bit concerned when they saw these plans come forth because, you know, it called for two high-rise towers 20 stories high. And, you know, that's obviously three times higher than the 60-foot limit. Yes, we don't really comment on actual plans on projects until the um, developer submits it. But you know, we have met with them, and we also attended a couple of their public meetings and had a look at their initial plans. But yes, what they're proposing is more height than the existing TOD zoning would allow. Like any affordable housing project, they have the option of using the TOD zoning, which has significant advantages and flexibility and additional you know, height and density available compared to current. But they have indicated they probably intend to use the, the state uh, 201H zoning, which most affordable housing projects use, and there's additional flexibility allowed in the 201H process to to have waivers from things like height and density or you know pretty much any other zoning requirements. And that's an application that gets filed with the uh, Hawaii Housing and Finance Development Corporation. They actually have the choice. It's a it's a state law. The 201H is a, is a state law, but they have the option of applying through the city or applying through the state. I don't have an indication which one they'll use. So they, they can choose whether they want to process it uh, as a city project or through the state. Even if it goes to to the state, uh, typically they will have to come to city council to ask for waivers of things like development permit fees and, and some other things like that. Well, you know, it is hard to say no to affordable housing because our need is so great and we are in a crisis. But at the same time, you know, when you have a process that's set up and the community in good faith gave input and, uh, you know, let uh, our lawmakers know what was important to them, uh, you know, protecting the historic and the uh, cultural aspects, you know, of that community uh, and our sugar plantation heritage, you know, I mean, you've got to consider that. Yeah, so that was considered in the, you know, in the TV plans, and, you know, there's a, 
significantly more density at some of the other stations recommended, certainly, you know, the downtown uh, stadium and, and some of the other ones, um, there's less density as you go farther out, you know, independent of the, you know, the character of the, you know, sugar, sugar mill town and, and, you know, the old plantation town and protecting the, the chimney. There's a little, has been historically a little less market for major, you know, heightened density farther out. If you're an affordable housing advocate, it's uh, you know, certainly encouraging to see somebody like Kamehameha Schools proposing to do a, an entirely affordable housing project um, in an area that's sorely needed. But, you know, we, we tend to respect the, the will of the people in the adopted zoning and the will of council. But we also note that probably the single biggest priority for folks in Waipau is the need for more affordable housing. We hear that every time we go out and meet with folks there, whether it's the neighborhood board or other meetings. And so when the developers started proposing this, we strongly recommended that they go pretty intensely with meetings with folks out there, going to the neighborhood board. We understand from them that they'll be doing a process this fall and, and probably have a, a larger town hall meeting. It's not required by the permit process, but you know, I think they're going to do some extra meetings and meet with anybody interested and have a you know, public town hall for discussion. That's not 100% required by the ONH process, but we recommended that they you know talk to folks and and get in on the affordable housing. City administration and DPP is strongly in support of more housing, both workforce and affordable housing, around all the rail stations. We think that that's a community conversation that you know needs to be had about whether the need for more affordable housing is, in this particular case, as designed or not, is something that the community is interested in seeing. KS, you know, has uh, told us that, uh, yeah, the Waipahu properties are the farthest west that they own uh, and can be redeveloped. And, you know, that community uh, does need an overhaul. It's a poor neighborhood. It's run down. And uh, a facelift uh, would be welcome. So so this is, though, one to watch because it is exceeding the, the height limit of the area. It's, it's certainly not the 400 feet limits in town in Kaka'ako, like we're seeing with the luxury units. It's half that, but still, uh, it's not 60 feet. That's correct. Um, we, we also advised them to uh, go a little bit overboard in creating visuals, you know, from multiple perspectives so that people could see what the, you know, the proposed housing would actually look like from different directions as compared to the smokestack. So I think they've done a decent job of that in, in their renderings so that they can have a conversation with folks about what the, the visual impacts would be in return for getting the much-needed very affordable housing in that location. And has the city gotten any indication about the Westlock properties at all and what might be planned for that area since it does allow for greater density? We've had a, a couple of the landowners and consultants meet with us about projects in the Westlock area, but nothing, uh, nothing solid proposed for permits yet. And who are the largest landowners over there? There's uh, the larger shopping center, Don Quixote area, I think that's owned by the Robinson Trust. There's not a lot of other major landowners. Is there anything else that you think would be important for folks to know about the TOD districts? You know, not just in Waipahu, but in the other areas as it comes sure, to? Sure, yeah. And we are seeing a, a lot more interest. There obviously is, as you're aware, that most of the activity has been where the market is interested in developing in the Alamoana area. We already got great walkability, great bus service, and you know, you're close to the destinations. Um, but we're seeing you know, a lot more interest and conversation and you know, development planning um, along many of the other stations. You know, we had a couple year kind of break of less activity due to COVID, like literally every business on island. It affected some of the uh, near-term projects, got delayed a little bit, but um, a lot of the developers are you know, a longer-term approach and they're not waiting out. They've been busily, you know, doing designs and making plans and waiting for the economic conditions to to come back. And so there's, um, I think you'll see lots more projects coming up in the next couple of years, a couple more planned in Almona area. Uh, KS, as you mentioned, in talking about Waipahu, they're still working on their Kapalama Canal project, and have, you know, in the, in the ULA Kapalama area. It's not really hitting the newspapers a lot, but you know, D.R. Horton out, out at Ho'opili, has, uh, they're up to almost around 2,000 units built already out there, and they're 
as they get closer to the rail stations, they're becoming more dense, multi-story, mixed use. They've been having, you know, uh, even, you know, shut down the street on their festival street and even gatherings with some of their residents out there. So a lot more activity um, and, and you know, construction happening around the rail stations. You know, it's not all big tower projects, not at all tomorrow. Gosh, so then I guess as far as Waipahu, we'll just have to watch to see what the community feels and, and make sure that they have a voice in this process. Yeah, and, the, you know, the, the, the city absolutely supports more housing, uh, both workforce and affordable housing around all the rail stations. But, you know, we'll, we'll wait to see what, what avenue they, they take in terms of what they propose. We've strongly encouraged and counseled them to go a little overboard on community input beyond what the permit requires, because this is a little bit of a change from their community vision, you know, although it's addressing the dire need for more affordable housing. So we look forward to sitting in and, and observing those community meetings that they have. Okay, so it will be one to watch. But thank you so much, Harrison. Thanks. That was Harrison Rue, the city's transit-oriented development administrator. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from area lawmakers on the city and state level about their thoughts on this project. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu since 1964, committed to helping preserve the island's land, ocean, and culture with its Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts. KahalaResort.com Summer is around the corner, and with it comes summer book lists. Don't you feel, Jasmine, that like every time you get to pick what to read next, it's just like a little gift to yourself? Yeah, that scholastic book fair feeling, right? It never goes away. Authors Jasmine Guillory and Emma Straub have recommendations next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Tioki Trading, featuring Toto Toilets and Jacuzzi and Bullfrog Hot Tubs and Swim Spas, serving Hawaii for 40 years. More information by calling Backyard Quiz. We told you about the Japanese celebration called Tango no Seku. Neighborhoods throughout Japan are decorated uh, with carp streamers from April to early May. Local families picked up this cultured addition through early Japanese immigrants. The custom has changed so that the carp is not only flown for the boys in the family, but also parents and for each child in the family. These colorful windsocks symbolize hope for strength and help. Uh, health. The carp is a symbol of strength, courage, and success. If you see the koi no bori streamers blowing in the wind, not only do the carp look like they are swimming, but these flags also mean summer is right around the corner. And longtime listener and first-time winner Christopher from Mountain View got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, uh, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Comedy is a series of short, amusing scenes or vignettes performed by comedic actors and featured on television shows like Saturday Night Live and Kids in the Hall. Here in Hawaii, it was popularized by local group Booga Booga and Rap Repinger in the 1970s. Not too sweet, not too rancid, but just right, okay? So, Russell, you get pen. What? Pen! 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 Confound it! Tell fate your nagi, I love her. Tell fate your nagi, I need her. Sketch comedy continues to be part of our entertainment scene because of acts like uh, the Bradas and places like Improv Hawaii. 
one of Hawaii's current sketch comedy uh, breakout stars is Leeward Oahu native Jordan Savusa. He's a resident stage actor at Second City, the legendary comedy theater in Chicago. Celebrated alums include John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, and Gilda Radner, and committee actors Steve Carell and Tina Fey. Uh, Savusa was home on vacation and took time to talk about his comedic roots and aspirations with the conversation's Russell Subiano. What would you say interests you more, comedy or improv, or is it really a combination of the both? Well, growing up, I've always just been interested in comedy. And so, like, growing up, watching Kids in the Hall, Buck Python, yeah. and Frank DeLima, and Rap Reitlinger. I, I love sketch comedy, to be specific. But mm-hmm. I found that improv is a great way to get into sketch comedy, which is what I did all those years ago mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Hawaii comedy circuit. So I was doing stand-up, but I was also being a part of an improv troupe called On the Spot. It led me to sketch comedy, which is something I've always wanted to do in my life. I'm a huge fan of Kids in the Hall as well. In fact, we had Kevin McDonald on the show a few years ago. Cool. And, uh, I managed to get a, a picture with him, and it's one of the highlights of my time working here. As you were growing up here, what was your experience with comedy here? I know you touched on it a little bit, but at what point did you start doing stand-up, or, or when did you start taking your first improv class? I first started doing open mics just doing stand-up around town, sometimes at Sharky's Comedy Club, which was in Waikiki at the time, but mm-hmm. also uh, Coffee Talk on Kapahulu Avenue. <laughs> oh, right, I did right. a bunch of open mics, and I loved it. And I just started writing material and just doing all the open mics I could. And around the same time, I was also acting at the University of Hawaii. I was taking all the right classes, but also I was being a part of On the Spot Improv Troupe, which was one of the first improv troops in Hawaii. It was great. I absolutely loved it. And that's where, like, everything came together. It was a perfect storm of interests that culminated into me being the regular opener for the Laugh Factory. At the time, I was opening for a bunch of people. And then just doing shows with On the Spot and whoever wanted me, I'd do a show. (laughs) You know, there's not many places you can do improv and stand-up here in the island. So every opportunity, you just take it and see how it goes. How old were you when you did that first open mic? I was 19. I had moved back from Monmouth, Oregon, after uh, an attempt to play D2 football for Western Oregon University. Mm -hmm. Did not work out. And so when I moved back, I enrolled at UH, and I went to Shark. I just wanted to give it a shot. Went to Sharky's Comedy Club, open mic, and I fell in love with it immediately. Said my first joke, and that was it. So you're doing stand-up, you're doing some open mics, you are doing improv. At what point did you make the decision, man, I got to move on this? I think a lot of people looking to get into entertainment, they usually look towards LA or New York. How did you come to the decision to go to Chicago and to pursue Second City? Well, I was around 24. And uh, at some point, I I had been working as a professional actor here, and I was a professional stand-up. And... I was a professional improv comedian, you know, and I felt that I had done many things here in Hawaii, but I wanted to pursue something that was outside of Hawaii and really myself because, you know, we get so comfortable where we are, we stop taking risks. And around 24, I moved to Los Angeles to be a, go through the Groundlings Comedy School, which a lot of big names have come through there. Yeah. I picked there first because it was only five hours on airplane. And it was hard in Los Angeles. Everybody wants the same thing. But once again, I I loved it. And I I would have gone through it again and again if I could. And that just led me to do more things that I loved. And it's weird because it's just a niche of what's out there. But I really love that niche. You get to play a bunch of characters. You get to say whatever you want. Be funny. And if you work hard enough at it, you, you know, more and more people get to see you. What's it like to be a Second City cast member? What's the process? Is it a, is it a full-time thing? Is it a part-time thing? Is there a, a cyclical kind of schedule where you write, you perform, you write, you perform? How, do, how does that all work? It is, it is a full-time job. It's from Tuesday to Sunday, mm-hmm. and we perform every night, two shows a night on Fridays and Saturdays. And gosh, how, many, how do I think this? So initially, when a show opens, 
there is another show already running and a new cast will go into this new show and slowly take that show apart and put their material in. They will test it every night at the second city. It's called process. And we're in the process of making a new show for the next two and a half months. And it is where we all sharpen our teeth for comedy, I guess. <laughs> you find out pretty quickly if something's not funny on stage in front of 300 people, but that's the process. You go and take risks on stage. You put on stage what you think is funny. And if they laugh, great. And if they don't, well, keep doing something. Honestly, it is a grueling process, but it's also very fun. You get to put up things that you thought of on stage in front of a bunch of people and see if it sticks. It's tough, but I, I love it. Do you have a story about the first time one of your sketches was performed or maybe something that you wrote that maybe you weren't quite sure about but ended up killing? One of the few that meant to me is that I wrote a sketch about an ukulele class. You know, the kinds of people that want to play the ukulele but don't really necessarily have a grassroots history for it, a heritage for it, like people of Hawaii. And so I wrote a sketch about the people, you know, like, who I, I want to impress my girlfriend or, you know, I vacationed in Hawaii for three days. So I think I know the culture, you know, right. stuff like, yeah, no, you know, you know, and, right. <laughs> and at the end of the song, I sing a song about Hawaii, about what it means to me that it's not just a tourist place that actual people live here and try to, you know, live their lives. And after the song, someone chihooed all the way in the back and, uh, a couple more chihus. And then turns out it was a, it was like a couple, um, like why and I, you know, they stayed after the show and they wanted to say hi to me. And like, it was one of those moments. It's like, well, for the, the rest of the people, they don't know what's going on. But for those two right. that are from Hawaii, <laughs> this hit good. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. At Second City, I, you get to show who you are and where you're from. And it is about being funny, but it's also about perspective. And sometimes outside of Hawaii, it's hard for people from the mainland to get it, but I get a chance to show that in front of people Tuesday through Sunday, 7 and 10 p.m. <laughs> and I love it. Speaking of perspective, you know, what do you feel your unique experiences and your unique perspectives bring to Second City? You know, most likely I am the first cast member that is from Hawaii. And I like to touch base on where I'm from. But I also like to show there's more to us than what they see on TV or what they talk about on their vacation incessantly. Like, oh, they now they know the Aina and they emphasize the Okina. It's just nice, I guess, for me to show who I am, a Pacific Islander. And for the longest time at Second City, it's just been white guys. And slowly they're, they come to diversify every experience. And I'm just happy to be a part of this next wave. I'm interested in, in that idea of diversity, too. It's been such a big subject in entertainment in, in recent years. What are your thoughts on diversity within comedy? What are, what are you seeing? Well, in Chicago, it feels like it's beginning to not just be white-centric. It's slowly chipped away, but there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. It's not over until everyone, you know, there's equity to all the comedy. And I think just for the last two years, it's really, in terms of diversity, spread out. It's really, you know, just spread its wings in a way. But there's always more to do. There's always more stories to tell. There are more stories that we need to see that isn't what we have seen for the past 100 years or 200 mm -hmm. And that is important for comedy because comedy is a way of understanding the perspective another person's shoes. And if that person is not your race or your identity, at least through comedy, you can understand because it's funny. Comedy is a, a great bridge between our differences. And I think when we laugh at the same things, I think it's a, a very good way to find some common ground when, when we're so different. Um, mm -hmm. Second City has been the most prolific feeder for Saturday Night Live casts for decades. Do you have aspirations to be part of SNL or do you have other goals that you're chasing? You knew that was coming, right? <laughs> I really didn't think you are going to ask that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Does everybody ask you that? Yeah, but uh, it's been a while, Russell. <laughs> uh, you know what? I would love to be on Saturday Night Live at any TV sketch show, for that matter. I'm watching a, a Black Lady sketch show right now because we have so much yeah. downtime at my parents. And I'm laughing so much. And I want to be a part of a, a show like that, an experience like that. That would be the dream. 
and working from Sharky's Comedy Club all the way up to Second City right now. I have lived that dream, but if that next step comes along, I would be more than happy to take it. I mean, of course, what do you, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no right. to Saturday Night Live, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to hang out and, and talk story. All right, see you, Russell. Thank you. That was Oahu native and Second City stage actor Jordan Savusa talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. If you're in Chicago, consider stopping by the legendary comedy theater to catch a show. that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear from area lawmakers about a proposed affordable high-rise rental development in the sleepy town of Waipahu. Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Share your comments. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect on Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.